Previously, on A Killing on the Cape. Last night at approximately 7.15 p.m., detectives from the Massachusetts State Police detective unit assigned to my office arrested Christopher A. McGowan, age 33, for the 2002 murder of Krista A. Worthington. wasn't fleeing, he wasn't hiding, he's volunteering his DNA. He didn't act like somebody who was guilty of this. The first two times that McGowan was questioned by the authorities, basically denied knowing him. But then they hand him the DNA report, and everything changes. And after you uh, showed him that report, slid it across the table to him, what did he do next? Uh, Mr. McGowan then stated, it could have been me. It could have been me? It could have been me. From ABC Radio in 2020, I'm Mark Remillard, and this is A Killing on the Cape. When police announced the arrest of Christopher McCowan for the murder of Krista Worthington, they worked to assure the community that their investigation, however long and controversial at times, had gotten the right man. Well, now it's it's a relief for the community. Now they can uh, rest at night. Uh, it was probably a, another relief that it wasn't a, a stranger that just came in and randomly picked the house. That's Truro's former police chief, John Thomas, and this is District Attorney Michael O'Keefe. The investigation continues now as we move into the prosecution phase of the case. But while there had been a number of steps in the investigation that would draw criticism, the arrest of a poorly educated black man for the murder of a wealthy white woman would rank among the top. Compounding that, a surprise charge added to the Commonwealth's list of allegations against Chris. Between the time of the murder and the autopsy of Chris's body and the arrest of Chris McCowan three years later, There was not a word about rape. Not one word about rape. Author Peter Manzo wrote the book Reasonable Doubt, the fashion writer, Cape Cod, and the trial of Chris McCowan, and worked as a consultant on this story. He covered Chris McCowan's trial and has been a supporter of the defense and believes Chris didn't get a fair trial. This case became a case not only of murder but rape only when and after they had arrested a black man. A murder and rape, aggravated rape. Uh, which was a new charge. Bob George was Chris McCowan's attorney during his trial. In all, Chris was facing first-degree murder, aggravated rape, and aggravated burglary. I mean, don't get me wrong, I I wasn't surprised by the armed house invasion, and I wasn't uh, surprised by the murder indictments. What I was surprised by was the rape indictment. It'd be more than a year after his arrest that Chris's trial would begin in the small, one-room superior court in Barnstable County. Fittingly, a silver codfish hangs from the ceiling of the courtroom. Some call it the cod of God. We have the record show that the defendant, Krista M. McGowan, is in the court when we're charging the defendant with murder in the first degree. How do you plead guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. I've been in this courtroom before. It's a beautiful space, but it's not a very large courtroom, especially for a case that would gather so much media attention. In fact, the witness stand is quite literally that. There's no chair. Just off to the judge's left is an area where witnesses stand during testimony. This case was so unusual for this community. This is not a big city. This is a small town in Massachusetts that hadn't had a first-degree murder case in 30 years. 
ABC's senior legal correspondent, Sonny Hostin, and ABC's senior legal analyst, Dan Abrams. For Cape Cod, this was the trial of the century. There had never been anything like this in recent memory. My name is Beth Karras. I'm a legal analyst and consultant. I was a correspondent for Court TV when Christopher McCowan's trial took place, and I covered the entire trial. This case had been around for a long time. Right? She is found dead on January 6, 2002. I arrive at the courthouse in October of 2006. This was a long time coming, and people were ready, and it was a big deal. There's a big parking lot um, between the Superior Courthouse Superior Court Courthouse and the District Court over here. Author and consultant Peter Manzo. Parking lot is chock-a-block full. Satellite TV trucks. Um, reporters all over the place with, you know, cell phones, computers. Jury selection would begin on October 16th, 2006. And for Chris's attorney, Bob George, it was a delicate process. In a case like this, with so many layers from socioeconomic divides to issues of race, from its media attention to preconceived opinions on McCowan's guilt, George says he had to do his best to find a jury that could fairly judge Chris McCowan. Different lawyers look for different types of juries. Uh, the type of jury I needed and the type of jury that I wanted to get was a working class jury. But getting that, he says, isn't always easy. Uh, and of course, you always want people who've been accused of crime on a jury so they understand the way the system works and should work and shouldn't work. And... The trouble with picking this jury was that as as much as people want to believe that Cape Cod is this gorgeous resort-like community where everybody has money and walks around with umbrellas, uh, it, it really is a community where people are, you know, working just as hard to try to pay the bills as anywhere else, especially the off-season crowd. And when you are picking a jury on Cape Cod, self-employed people, uh, people with any kind of criminal record. Uh, people who uh, have to work to pay their bills uh, are not picked for jury duty because they're sole supporters or they're single mothers or they're single parents. So you lose all of those jurors. And here I am defending you know, Chris McCowan, uh, you know, an African-American male from Key West. And I'm looking for people of color on a jury or people who are working class jurors. And I'm, lo- I, and I'm losing most of them because most of them cannot serve. Bob George would pay particular attention to whether potential jurors had any racial prejudice, but also if they had any thoughts on whether someone could falsely confess to a crime, especially since the trial would focus so much on the reliability of Chris's interview with police on the night of his arrest. But more on that in a bit. For the prosecution, meanwhile, Assistant District Attorney Robert Welsh III would present the Commonwealth's case. This case has to do with a horrendous crime as defined by our laws. The Welsh dynasty. Who are the Welshes? Uh, The Welshes, we are now in the fourth generation of Welsh family judges on Cape Cod. Fourth. We're talking about going back to the early, what, 1900s, I guess. Author and Um, consultant Peter Manzo. Welsh is is an assistant district attorney, and it's a huge opportunity for Rob Welsh. From the day he got out of Georgetown Law School, I think that's where he went, Georgetown, um, which is impressive. was set on becoming the fourth Judge Welsh on Cape Cod. Jury selection would last two days, selecting 12 jurors and four alternates. Peter Manzo on the makeup of the jury. Um, There were two black faces in the jury, a man and a woman. One of them was, in fact, um, probably mixture Azorian and Wampanoag Indian. 
And the other was uh, a woman, middle-aged woman, who um, had in fact recently moved with her husband and three kids, I subsequently found out, to Cape Cod, wanting to give, as she explained it to me, her kids a better shot in life. With the jury set, Cape Cod's trial of the century began. The prosecution's case hammered home three main points. First, Assistant D.A. Welsh went over the brutality of the crime scene. The defendant was completely indifferent to her suffering, and that's based on the statement that you'll hear that he made. Welsh showed jurors photos of Krista's body on the floor, as well as photos of the blood stains in the house. The photos were very graphic. Robert Lyon was an alternate juror during Chris McCowan's trial. They added a certain gravity to the case that you didn't necessarily, you know, the idea of it is one thing in your brain. And I think those photos helped us to get the reality of the crime scene, to get the reality of a murder was committed. Welsh also called Tim Arnold to the stand. Remember, he was Krista's ex-boyfriend and the one who discovered her body. There was blood around her head. Her right leg was up. Her knee was up in the air. With the legs together or spread apart? Somewhat spread apart. Next, the prosecution spent days going over the forensic evidence, calling both Robert Martin and Kenneth Martin, the two crime scene techs who collected evidence at the scene, the state police lieutenant who photographed 50 Depot Road, as well as Dr. Henry Neils. Neils would discuss Krista's autopsy, recalling for the jury the various injuries she had on her body, as well as driving home the details of Krista's stab wound. But what's interesting about this is that it wasn't Dr. Neils who performed the autopsy. He was subbing in for Dr. James Weiner, who couldn't testify because of illness. Neils was forced to simply read from Weiner's notes. So, with the brutal crime scene in the minds of jurors, the forensic evidence laid out showing a match for Chris McCowan's DNA on Krista's body, Assistant DA Welsh moved to link the evidence with the 27-page report of Trooper Mason's interview with Chris. My name is Christopher Mason. What is your occupation, sir? Employed as a trooper with the Massachusetts State Police. And did you have occasion to interview a Christopher McCowan? Yes, I did. On the stand for more than a day, Trooper Chris Mason went over the six-hour interview he had with Chris McCowan, which we talked about in the last episode. Detailing his 27-page report, Mason went over Krista's statement in which he first says he didn't know Krista, then admits that he did have sex with her, then says he was at Krista's house on that Friday night with his friend Jeremy Frazier, whom he says was going through Krista's things, which led to an argument and ended with both of them beating Krista. stated that Jeremy lost it and I just followed suit. It was pandemonium. Finally, the statement ends with Chris saying it was Jeremy who stabbed Krista. Juror Robert Lyon. Robert Walsh, the prosecutor, was very straightforward in, in, in presenting the case and was very, I don't know, he did a, an excellent job in getting, giving us the facts as best he could. Um, the defense attorney was really a character, I thought. Chris's defense, meanwhile, would attempt to not only poke holes in the prosecution's case, but also present an entirely new timeline of events to show Chris's innocence. Chris's former attorney, Bob George. It wasn't an easy trial, but I mean, I thought that I I had planned to attack uh, the validity and reliability of the statement. First, despite the fact that Chris declined to have the interview recorded, Bob George criticized the fact that the pivotal six-hour interview was reduced to just a 27-page summary. The statement 
is not worth the paper it's written on. This interview of the man arrested for a crime that the whole nation knew about. This is in New York Times, People Magazine, USA Today, you name it. Was not taped. Author and consultant Peter Manzo. Now, as an experienced reporter who always uses a tape recorder, six hours of talk does not translate to 28 pages. It translates more to three to 400 pages. And compounding the fact that there is no recording of the interview were concerns raised by the defense that Chris's low intelligence meant he was saying what he thought the police wanted to hear. To back this up, George called Dr. Eric Brown, a forensic psychologist who's testified in more than 200 trials. Having, a, having an IQ of 78 and being subjected to that kind of stressful, prolonged interview makes him also very susceptible to manipulation. You know, he was putty in their hands, as are most people when they're in this kind of a situation. It's, you're terrified. You, you, you can't think straight. And... Um, you're not very in a, in a state where you're very discriminating. You know, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that when they asked him to sign this waiver, um, by complying, McCallum may well have thought, this is going to get me points with these guys. They're not going to be so hard on me. Uh, they might believe me if I sign what they want me to sign. Bob George also challenged whether the interview should have taken place at the time that it did, arguing that on top of his inability to understand the gravity of his situation, Chris wasn't even sober at the time. He was completely wasted when he was taken into that police station. Christopher McGowan says that he didn't say a lot of the things that the investigators say he said, and he says he doesn't even really remember the interrogation because he was under the influence of Percocet, cocaine, and marijuana. ABC's senior legal correspondent, Sonny Hostin. A report from police following Chris's arrest says four burnt joints were found in Chris's house. And another report says Chris told police he had taken two Percocet, an opioid pain reliever for knee pain on the afternoon of his arrest. All of this, the argument that Chris wasn't smart enough to understand what was happening, that he wasn't sober at the time of his interview, and that the interview wasn't recorded so it could be scrutinized later, Bob George hoped would plant seeds of doubt in the minds of jurors about Chris's interview. I thought that the investigation had been shaky. Uh, I thought that McCowan's mental and emotional condition lent itself to false confession. Attacking Chris's statement was key for his defense, since during his interview, Chris had placed himself at 50 Depot Road around the time that the prosecution says Krista was killed. But it would also take holes in the forensic evidence for jurors to doubt the Commonwealth's case. Bob George attempted to do this in a few ways. First, he challenged the state's timeline. Because I also thought that the time of death in the case was completely off the mark. Now, if the time of death in the case is off the mark, then McCowan doesn't need an alibi because he would be somewhere else at the time the crime is allegedly occurring simply by the way the evidence was going to come in. The prosecution said Krista had been killed roughly 24 to 36 hours before she was found at 4.30 p.m. on Sunday, January 6th, so sometime in the early morning hours of Saturday. They'd couple that with Chris's statement to police, in which the report says he arrived at Krista's house approximately 39 hours before her body was discovered, putting Chris at 50 Depot Road very near the estimated time of Krista's death. But Bob George would raise questions about just how accurate that timeline is. 
he'd pressed Dr. Henry Niels, the doctor who subbed in to review the autopsy report, about exactly when rigor mortis set in and what that says about Krista's time of death, arguing that because she hadn't been in full rigor at the time she was discovered, Krista couldn't have died any earlier than 8 a.m. on Saturday. Much of this forensic back and forth over the phases of rigor mortis, lividity, effects of temperature, etc., was very complicated and open to interpretation. Beth Karras, an attorney and former Court TV correspondent. You know, it can be hard to fix the time of death because there are so many elements that will go into it. Uh, the weather conditions, the temperature. So no one can really say, you know, for sure. I mean, sometimes there can be certain changes in the body, which means it was within 24 hours. Here, Bob George says, you know, she wasn't killed Friday night, the way McCowan describes. But it's really hard to determine. The, the, the complexities that were thrown out for the jurors, jurors to consider were huge. Author and consultant Peter Manzo. But challenging the timeline was important in casting doubt over whether Chris was at or around 50 Depot Road near the time of the murder. And to further his scrutiny of the timeline, Bob George presented a whole new scenario at trial, and one that he believes was largely ignored during the investigation. The house is up there on top of the of the knoll. I'm Gerard Smith. Back then, every day, I walked three miles. This is Gerard Smith. He's a Truro resident, and back in 2002, he says he would regularly walk around the neighborhood where Krista lived. He says on Saturday, January 5th, 2002, one day before Krista's body was discovered, he was walking down Depot Road when something caught his attention. When I got to here, I walked across here and I could hear a car going at very fast rate of speed because of the sand that it kicked up in under the car. And I turned to see who was driving that car at such a fast rate. And the car came out, went right in, took a right turn and didn't stop, period. As it turned out, it was Krista Worthington's driveway and that was it. This was Saturday around 12 o'clock. At trial, Gerard Smith said it was more like 1 o'clock. But either way, one day before Krista's body is found, Smith says he was about 15 feet from a dark-colored car that bolted out of Krista's driveway and sped off. I, I, I think that the vehicle was large and it was dark. And what it was I didn't pay attention to, I just kept looking at the person. That's it. And that person, he says didn't look like Chris McCowan. Could you describe the person? He was uh, Caucasian. He was a little dark, but he was not black. I turned around to see who was driving the car, and a gentleman, uh, dark-complected, oval face, uh, was driving the car, and he had brown hair. At the time, of course, Smith had no idea that up the driveway at 50 Depot Road was Krista Worthington's body and her two-year-old daughter left unattended. About a week and a half later, Smith talked to then-Truro Police Chief John Thomas about what he saw. He ended up speaking with Trooper Mason three days later on January 19, 2002. The information in the report is largely consistent with what Smith testified to in court, though Mason had written it was now closer to 2 p.m. when Smith said he saw the vehicle. Smith says police would return to show him pictures of cars, but he insists that they should have been showing him pictures of drivers, not vehicles. And they kept saying, well, what did the car look like? And I kept saying, I didn't look at the car, I looked at the person driving it. 
So they didn't pay attention. They had their own way, and that was it. I guess uh, they didn't believe me or something of that nature. That's how it goes. Chris McCowan's former attorney, Bob George. Uh, the police, the investigators in this case, obviously uh, disregarded Gerard Smith's testimony because he wasn't telling them something they wanted to hear. Because it's impossible to turn away from evidence like that when you have someone coming from the crime scene at a high rate of speed. By the way, when you say a dead body is lying up in the house um, and a pillar, a, a person like Gerard Smith is the person who makes the observations. Gerard Smith is some, not some homeless junkie lying in the street who's imagining things because he's, you know, because he's out of his mind. This is someone who testified clearly at trial as to, as to what he had seen, and the description of the person coming out of that driveway uh, did not match the description of Christopher McCowan, nor the ethnic background or the race of Christopher, Christopher McCowan. There are more than a few possibilities as to what Gerard Smith could have seen. Maybe it was the murderer fleeing the scene, as the defense would like to suggest. Maybe it was someone who had good reason to be at Krista's, but stumbled across the crime scene and took off. Either way, if Smith is to be believed, as he says, the scenario is troubling. The thing that bothered me was, obviously, later, the individual had seen the carnage and left this baby with her mother in this blood and everything. That's the thing that bothered me more than anything else. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Tied in with his challenge of the state's timeline, Bob George hoped to separate the forensic evidence from Chris's statement and introduce a whole new sequence of events for Chris in the days before Krista's body was found. Bob George once again focused in on the autopsy report, narrowing in on the fact that despite all the injuries Krista suffered, it did not specify that there had been a sexual assault. This is him questioning Dr. Henry Neilds about the autopsy. So there's no evidence of any violent sexual contact with the victim in this case in the form of injury, is there? There's no report of injury, right? In the medical examiner's report, he doesn't mention that she was raped. There's nothing to suggest on her body that she was violently sexually assaulted. Former FBI profiler and ABC News consultant Brad Garrett. The police and prosecutors make a presumption that if you find somebody that's nude, the three things, nude from the waist down, uh, has been murdered, and there is there's, there's signs of DNA in or around uh, her that a sexual assault occurred, and that with this type of murder, that it is not consensual. So and so that's how they get to rape. So in challenging that a sexual assault had occurred, Bob George proposed a whole new scenario to the jury that Chris had never been at Krista's house overnight Friday into Saturday, as the report of his interview says but instead that Chris had gotten his days mixed up and he was at Krista's house on Thursday and that's when he had sex with her. 
In Krista's statement to police, he mentions having a conversation with Krista about her Christmas tree. Remember, it was a couple weeks after Christmas, and Krista hadn't gotten rid of her tree yet. Here's Trooper Mason at Krista's trial. Uh, Mr. McCall explained to me that he had had a discussion with Krista Worthington that evening in that house about getting rid of the Christmas tree. That Friday night, is that correct? That's correct. So Trooper Mason's report says that Chris McCowan had had a conversation with Krista about her Christmas tree on the night that Chris says he and Jeremy went up to Krista's house, and that that's when he had sex with her and claims Jeremy later killed Krista. But Bob George would argue Chris got his days wrong. Chris McCowan, uh, Chris McCowan's version of his relationship with Krista Worthington was that of a one-time event uh, with a customer on his route uh, that previous Thursday. That's what he described to me. If you think back to the last episode, Chris's regular trash pickup would take him by Krista's house on Thursdays. So Bob George says that it was on that day in which Krista had invited him in to look at her Christmas tree, and that's when they had consensual sex. He says he was on his route on a Thursday. Krista called him into her home because she wanted him to remove her Christmas tree. He says that one thing leads to another, and they do have this encounter but that it's consensual. Was there anything to back this up, though? Bob George pointed to two things at trial. One, a call he says was placed by Chris from inside Krista's house that day, and two, the forensic evidence. Remember Don Horton? We talked about him last time. He was the owner of Cape Cod Disposal who hired Chris and gave him a place to live. He says he got a call from Chris one day while Chris was on his route. Chris McGowan called me from Krista's home in Truro one day and asking me about her Christmas tree. Horton says he can't be sure of the day, but that it was on one of Chris's regular pickup days, which was on Thursdays. He called me and he asked, he says, she has a Christmas tree. What should I do? Should I take it? And Chris was in the wrong truck because I had little rubbish load, rubbish trucks. And I told him, I said, we will get it on Monday when we go into Provincetown to do the recycling. We'll just stop there on the way back if she wants us to and pick it up then. He called in on Thursday to take Krista Worthington's Christmas tree. He was at the house and he had sex with her. And he didn't rape her because there's no evidence of rape. But it's not just Chris's claim that he was there on Thursday and Bob George saying Don Horton backs that up. He says the forensic evidence also supports it. Chris's fingerprints were never found at the crime scene, and while investigators found hairs, they never found any that were consistent with an African-American. So the only forensic evidence tying Chris to the scene was the DNA found on Krista's body. But Bob George says the sperm sample police collected was so degraded that it could have been there for days before Krista's death. There were no fingerprints. There were no footprints. There was nothing in the house that indicated Chris McCowan was there. Other than the seminal fluid... It, the testimony in this case indicated that the state of the seminal fluid uh, that was found on Crystal Worthington's body was in such a condition that it could have been there for days before because it had degenerated to the point that there were no tails. And I don't want to talk like heads and tails, but there were no tails on the evidence, which indicated it could have been there for days, which, of course, destroyed the time of, the time of the crime and the version of events that the Commonwealth was trying to sell to the jury. All this served as an attempt by the defense to create a bigger valley between when Chris had sex with Krista and when she died. After hounding Chris's statement, the forensic evidence, and the state's timeline of events, 
Bob George would make an effort to create reasonable doubt by presenting alternative theories as to who may have committed the murder. And he would point to the man that Chris blamed for the murder in his statement to police, Jeremy Frazier, who would end up testifying on behalf of the prosecution. Jeremy Frazier's testimony was like an early Christmas present for the defense. Amalia Barada was a reporter for WCVB in Boston and covered Chris's trial. In all of the trials that I have covered, and there have been many over my 30-plus years of being a reporter, I don't remember a prosecution witness ever sending up red flags like Jeremy Frazier did. And the defense would welcome those so-called red flags. Jeremy testified that he was at the juice bar with Chris and his friend Sean Mulvey. Remember, they were there for a rap contest on the Friday before Chris's body was found. And just like in his interview with police, he said that he left the juice bar and went to an after party where a fight broke out. Everyone got kicked out of the party, and that's when he and Sean went back to Sean's father's house and were there the rest of the night. Jeremy says he didn't know what happened to Chris. But under cross-examination from Bob George, Jeremy would make a startling admission about his memory from that night. And did the police ask you where you had been that day? Yes. And did you remember? No. In fact, you didn't even remember where you had been after the juice bar the first time they talked to you, right? Yeah, until they fed me pieces of information where I was that night. So they were feeding you pieces of information? You just said fed you pieces of information, right? Yeah. When you say feeding you pieces of information, who was feeding you pieces of information? Stay place. Jeremy Frazier said under oath that the police helped refresh his memory about where he was that night. Jeremy Frazier is a prosecution witness who is now saying that the state police were feeding him information. That's not what you want in your witness if you're the prosecutors. ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. Jeremy was asked point blank if he was involved in the murder. And I ask you now for the record, did you kill Crystal Worthington? No, I didn't. He also denied ever being at Krista's house that night, and the prosecution says Chris was alone. The friend Jeremy says he was with, Sean Mulvey, would also testify, backing up that Jeremy was with him all night. Jeremy was probably the most intoxicated out of everybody, so I told him to come with me. During the course of that evening, uh, did Jeremy remain at your house? The whole night, yes, he did. But Bob George would question Mulvey. If he was so sure that Jeremy was with him, why didn't he originally back up Jeremy's alibi when police first talked to him? It was an initial meeting with the police where you told me you basically didn't remember anything. Is that correct? Yeah, that was the the first time uh, advice from my father. So was that a lot? In the first statement, yes. We wanted to talk with Sean and see if he remembered anything about that night. We found out that he lives in Florida and sent a crew there, but he told us that he didn't want to talk. Our producer Karen Schiffman and I also went by Sean's father's house on Cape Cod, the one where Sean says he and Jeremy were that night. So no luck. So the note is there, and you can see that there's something in the mailbox. No one was home, so we left a note, but we never heard anything. So while the defense tried to raise doubt about the state's case, the questions remain. Could jurors just throw out Chris's statement? Could they just ignore that Chris had said he was at Krista's with Jeremy and participated in beating Krista but didn't kill her? 
Could they look past the DNA? Could they believe that he had consensual sex with her? Just as there's a dichotomy on Cape Cod, the idyllic summer seaside getaway contrasted by the cold, harsh winters, or the affluent vacation destination equaled by blue-collar year-rounders. There are two sides to this case, and even to Chris McCowan. To some, Chris is a jovial, laid-back prankster whose tough exterior doesn't match the man inside. But to others, he's a violent man who raped and killed a single mother and left her toddler alone with the body. The jury was instructed to only weigh the evidence outlined in the case. But some, like author Peter Manzo and defense attorney Bob George, saw the case as a broader challenge about assumptions and prejudice. So as soon as they see the black garbage man, it's rape. Not just rape, aggravated rape. Because this woman would never have had sex with a garbage man unless it's rape. I think this entire case is riven with racial prejudice. I'm saying, beginning with the simple fact that for three years this was a murder case, not a rape case. And it became a rape case only when they busted a black man, a black suspect. Then it became a, ra- uh, a rape case. ABC's senior legal correspondent, Sonny Hostin. This defense was somewhat novel in this town because you have to believe that this white, privileged, attractive fashion writer from a background of affluence would actually be interested in a good-looking, yet simplistic African-American garbage collector. In order for the defense to be successful, they had to convince the jury that this was consensual. The prosecution maintains to this day that the evidence against Chris and Chris alone was, quote, overwhelming, and that it didn't matter that Chris was black. Prosecutor Robert Welsh during his closing argument. Mr. George has tried to play the race card during this trial and said that the police couldn't accept the idea of consensual sex between the black garbage man and Crystal Worthington. And I suggest to you, this defendant would be facing the same evidence in the same trial with the same jury if he were white. Sixteen days after the start of the trial, the jury was given the case. When the jury went in for deliberations, we all waited. And we really didn't have a sense of how long this was going to take. But it took longer than I thought it would take. Amalia Barada covered the trial as a reporter for Boston's WCBB. We were running across the street to get coffee and water and lunch and whatever all the time. We were trying to make arrangements so that the verdict wouldn't come down while we were gone. It would take eight days of deliberation and one juror being removed for phone calls she made to her boyfriend talking about the case before a verdict would come in. After many days, the verdict comes in. It's a stampede up here to the courtroom. We, the jury, unanimously return the following verdict. Guilty of first degree, guilty of murder in the first degree, an extreme atrocity or cruelty, and also felony murder. Guilty on all three counts, murder, rape, and aggravated burglary. I went into closing argument believing I had at the very least a case of reasonable doubt. After the verdict, after the verdict was delivered to McCown, of course, was devastated, and uh, he started to cry. I remember this case for one reason and one reason alone. 
I watch the verdict come in. Sonny Hostin, a former federal prosecutor and ABC's senior legal correspondent. And having been a prosecutor and seen so many defendants be found guilty, I always look at the defendant for a reaction. This reaction was completely unusual. When the verdict came in and Christopher McGowan was found guilty of murder, of rape, he shook his head vehemently and cried. Chris would never testify during his trial, but at his sentencing, the court would hear from him for the first and only time. I feel sorry for the Philippines family, her daughter, and her. For all this time, I've been innocent. It's hard to hear, but Chris says he feels sorry for the Worthington family, Krista's daughter, and Krista, but says, quote, all this time I've been innocent. Meanwhile, a statement was also read on behalf of Amira Chase, Krista's friend and the one who got custody of Ava after her death. I know I will throughout Ava's life witness over and over again that Krista was robbed of the privilege and delight of raising her daughter. But today, I know that Ava will be an even stronger person, firm in the knowledge of all of those who supported her mother, Krista. According to consideration of your offense, it set forth and said indictment, hereby sends you to be in prison at the Massachusetts Correctional institution at Cedar Junction for and during the term of your natural life without the possibility of parole. Chris would receive three life sentences, one for the murder, one for the rape, and one for the burglary. But in Massachusetts, unlike other states, conviction on first-degree murder is life without parole. You die in prison. But the story doesn't end there. It was just a day after Chris's guilty verdict that Bob George would receive a call from one of the jurors voicing concerns about the deliberation process. And in the coming days, two more would also come forward with similar complaints. Three particular jurors that contacted me that uh, they believed that there was racial bias uh, in, the, in the jury deliberations. And I immediately filed, uh, I met with those three jurors, and I immediately filed a motion uh, to set aside a verdict as a result of uh, racial bias in the jury room. The three jurors signed affidavits, which included allegations that racist comments were made during deliberations and that some jurors had already made up their minds on Chris's guilt before deliberations began. One of the jurors that signed an affidavit was the sole black female on the panel. Author and consultant Peter Manzo interviewed her for his 2011 book, Reasonable Doubt, the fashion writer Cape Cod in the trial of Chris McCowan. Manzo's tapes of the interview have never been heard publicly before, and we've altered the voice of the juror to protect her privacy. I would say the first day, as soon as we get in there, the first thing I say, just to see how everybody's thinking my words to them was, so guys, I say, let's just say, let's see where we stand here. I said, who all thinks this man is guilty? And um, so I get some hands raised, like probably five, six. I'm like, and, and, and then I said, now who thinks not guilty? Like probably two. Two hands, one? Two, maybe three. And um, somebody, a couple people didn't even raise their hand at all. Mm -hmm. But, so after um, we did that, I said, so, first of all, the reason why I think he's not guilty is because, first of all, the charge, the judge told us, n until we start to deliberate, when we walk into this room, this mm -hmm. man is presumed innocent mm -hmm. until proven guilty. I said, we haven't even begun to deliberate. You people already think this man is guilty. 
How many people thought he was guilty from the get-go? I'm not accurate. I want to say at least five or six. Five or six. The juror did not want us to use her name. She told us that after the trial, she moved as far away from the Cape as possible. And in her interview with Manzo for his book, she described comments that she felt were racially biased during deliberations. Maybe day two or day three of deliberations. I'm not sure. Morning, afternoon. Morning. What happened? We were putting up issues, um, writing down pros and cons about, you know, what we think happened. these easels. Yeah, right. So I did me a whole probably presentation of, you know, what, you know, what I think, why I think this man is innocent because the Trooper Mason's testimony, mm-hmm. I felt like I went from believing some of it to not believing he had in his report mm-hmm. because if in fact this man is telling them he was at the scene of this murder, mm-hmm. this crime, mm-hmm. they would have recorded it anyway, regardless to what he signed here. Because they want to make sure, damn sure, that this stick in court, because this report alone ain't going to do it. After I presented my facts, so, I'm not, no, she says, um, she was heated, because I had all this stuff, you know, here, that I feel that. You're standing by the easel, she's sitting down on the other side right. of the table. After I finished presenting my case, so to say, I went to sit down. So she stands up heated as well, starts screaming out of top of her lungs. Yes, if this big black man beat this lady the way they said she would have the same marks. I said, what the hell does black guy do with it? And so everybody, oh, don't start, don't pull the race card. You're acting like Bob George. They're telling me, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. They're accusing you of acting like Bob George. No, but more than that, they're accusing you of playing the race card. Right. Other jurors, meanwhile, like Robert Lyon, who's a middle-aged man, sharply dressed with thick glasses and a bow tie, says race simply didn't play a role in their decision. Race did not play a part at all in deciding his guilt or deciding Christopher McGowan's guilt or innocence. It it had no effect on the verdict. For Robert, he says the crux of the Commonwealth's case, Chris's various accounts and the DNA match were crucial. One of, one of Bob George's defense strategies was to say that he, Christopher McGowan, came in on Thursday, had consensual sex with her, left, someone else came in and committed the crime. Um, this did not line up with Christopher McGowan's um, uh, interrogations that he had with the state police. There were a number of um, interrogations where he gave different versions of what happened. None of them said, I was there on Thursday and never came back. All of them said, in some version or another, that he was there when the crime happened. The DNA was very pivotal um, in, in the case. There's just no way around the DNA. The DNA put Christopher McGowan at the crime scene. It um, put an approximate time he was there at the crime scene. And there's no altering that. So to sort out whether racial bias played a role in the jury's verdict, the judge of the case, the same one who oversaw the trial, did a very rare thing and held a post-trial hearing to look back at how the jury reached their verdict. Each one of the jurors was called in to testify about the deliberation process. And that's why we had these extraordinary, I think it was four or five days of hearings, in which every juror 
uh, took the witness stand and testified. Judge Nickerson had four or five days of hearings. And then sometime in the next couple of months, I think it was in early 2007, uh, that motion was denied. It went up as part of the appeal, and it was denied on appeal. ABC's senior legal correspondent, Sonny Hostin, and ABC's chief legal analyst, Dan Abrams. The racial bias motion was denied. The judge found that the words big and black were just descriptors. The judge heard literally days of evidence about how the jury reached its verdict and in the end concluded that the verdict would stand. Since his conviction, Christopher McCowan has had three motions to get a new trial denied. And juror Robert Lyons says time hasn't changed his opinion. Christopher McGowan is the man who committed the murder. There is absolutely no evidence that anyone else did it. The trial was 10 years ago. Time has not altered at all my conviction about his guilt. Um, I still believe as strongly as I did then that he was the man who committed the crime. But as for the sole black woman on the panel who spoke with author and consultant Peter Manzo... This experience has changed me forever. Oh. Because for me to come in here to, you know, to be so naive, to think these are some nice people, you know, during the trial, and day one I start seeing true colors. I'm like, of deliberation. I'm like, this is crazy. I didn't think racism still existed this way. I just didn't know people still behave and felt that way. I truly didn't. It's been 10 years since Chris McCowan's conviction, and now with a new attorney, Chris is hoping to get new evidence that could warrant a new trial. There are a number of items that were not tested, but one of them was fibers. Those were never tested. And for the first time, Chris McCowan is ready for his side of the story to be heard. Chris didn't testify. You've never really heard from Chris as to what he said it actually happened. Hold on, this is him. There you go. Hey, hey, Chris, this is Mark. I'm a reporter with ABC. Why am I sitting in prison for somebody else? That's next time. A Killing on the Cape is a production of ABC Radio 2020 and ABC News Digital. David Sloan is 2020 senior executive producer, and Terry Lickstein is our executive producer for this series. Karen Schiffman is our senior editorial producer. Reporting in production by myself, Mark Remillard, Karen Schiffman, Carrie Cook, Gail Deutsch, Mark Dorian, Jeff Snyder, Jonathan Balthaser, Brittany Martinez, and Eric Mallow. Peter Manzo served as a consultant to ABC News for this story. His book is Reasonable Doubt, The Fashion Writer, Cape Cod, and The Trial of Chris McCowan. Our website is produced by Lauren Efron. That's at abcnews.com slash Cape. There you can see pictures and pieces from the Cape, as well as maps and key locations from our episodes. I'm ABC's Mark Remillard. Thanks for listening.